0: Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckers. This is an independent listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Today's show is an interview with Megan Zern, or as some of you who are really, really into history podcasts may know her, Z, the co-producer of the excellent British History Podcast. And we are going to be talking about Antonio Gramsci. Uh, if you pick up basically any book about fascist Italy, uh, especially any book that focuses on the early period where Mussolini is coming to power and gathering up institutions into his sphere of influence, the author will probably mention Gramsci, at least in passing. Gramsci was a socialist, a journalist, uh, a member of parliament briefly, and there are a few reasons why I wanted to focus on him. I wanted to give the opposition at least a little bit of attention uh, before we get into Mussolini's apex And eventual downfall. I don't want to just mention a socialist in passing, and then move on from there. Uh, I want to actually give you a pretty good picture of the type of political ideas that Mussolini and other people in his coalition were pushing back against. And I think Gramsci is probably the most interesting person uh, in that bunch that you could focus on. Uh, He also gives a human face to the type of people that Mussolini was casting to one side, throwing in prison, you know, oppressing. Uh Gramsci, he was thrown in prison in 1926, and he died in prison 11 years later in 1937. So I know I mentioned the Mattiotti murder, and I know I mentioned Mussolini throwing his various opponents in jail, but I think this will, you know, give a name and shape and face to what that meant. It meant that this guy who was, you know, a pretty smart dude, had his career cut short and his life cut short uh, because of his ideas. And also, Gramsci is just inherently interesting, and Z is a fascinating person to talk to, and it was a pleasure to have her on the podcast. So, enjoy. All right, so I'm talking today with Megan Zern. Some of you may know her as Z, one of the co-producers of the British History Podcast. Hello, Z! Hello! And today we're going to be talking about Antonio Gramsci, uh, which I've been looking forward to because... A lot of the series on Italian fascism has been lots of terrible things and bad stuff and uh, kind of awful people with sort of dim ideas about how the world works. And today we're not going to talk about that. Uh, so I want to begin by talking about uh, Gramsci. Who was he? What was his deal? What was his life like, Z.
1: Well, with that kind of pitch, I do want to hedge the audience's expectations okay. a little bit. This isn't a happy story. <laughs> no, very it's, not. Unfortunately, it's a It's a very sad story, but Gramsci was an amazing man he, mm-hmm. with an amazing mind. So amazing that they locked him up for it. He was born in 1891 mm-hmm. uh, in southern Italy. And Italy, in the, this time, the south was... It wasn't a cool place to be. It was where all the farmers were. And at the turn of the century, you didn't want to be a farmer. That was not like... The cool area of the world were not farmers. The cool stuff was happening in the north of Italy.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Italy's always had that, like, really strong north-south divide mm-hmm. between the, like, more kind of, quote-unquote, European and Mediterranean areas. And so he was from the more Mediterranean He's from area. the
1: south, so he's essentially an Italian country bumpkin. Uh-huh. Um, and when he was fairly young, a teenager, his older brother got him into journalism. Okay. So he started writing little pieces for local papers. And again, during this point, there was a ton of papers. Papers were like, you know, you had little pamphlets for just about everything. It was like turn of the century Reddit, right? You, if you had Oh, God. A, if you, <laughs> right? Seriously, though, if you had an interest, you could find a paper that would kind of speak to it or a slant. You could find a paper to speak to it. And so he found a couple of papers and was just sort of writing for them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he wrote his way into a scholarship in Turin for the University of Turin. Mm-hmm. I think that... Oh, no, it's just called the College of Turin. I'm sorry. And so he goes to the north of Italy. And he's a southern country bumpkin in the north. The cool thing about Turin at this point is we're in the sort of teens... What do you call them? 19 Um, teens works. Sure. The cool part about Turin at this point is that it's kind of like San Francisco during the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Where all the radical activity, it was happening at this town. So he arrives, country bumpkin, in Turin... Having written himself a journalism sort of type scholarship, mm-hmm. and he starts getting hooked up into the workers' movement. And at this point, it's rocket and roll in Turin. It's huge. Turin is like San Francisco in the nineteen sixties, but around workers' movements rather than you know the free love thing that was happening in the American nineteen sixties. And so there are all of these industrial actions happening around around here. Spontaneously, these things called uh, industrial councils are springing up. These were governing bodies or sort of self-governing bodies of workers mm-hmm. that uh, were centered around each factory. We would kind of recognize them as unions, but I think they were a little more, organization was a little different than what we'd recognize. But they were having an impact. They were really starting to bother the capitalists around this time. Mm-hmm. And Gramsci's in there. He's in it around this formative time of his youth when he's a, you know, young man. And this shapes the rest of what becomes his theory, his political thought that we still use today. Uh, His theory of how power works comes from essentially watching this happen, getting thrown into Turin during this pivotal point in its history, and then watching Italy descend into fascism.
0: So yeah, late 19-teens, like 1919 and 1920 in Italy were called the two red years, Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of worry by a lot of the non-socialist interests in Italy that, we might have a Russian revolution! Was there any, like, probability that could have happened for, like, that style of socialist revolution to have taken hold?
1: It's hard to say, considering how concerned they were. I think they were having an impact. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a lot of activity you know, they don't get very far on a political level, but in 19, I want to say 22. Yeah, it was 1922. He was actually, Gramsci himself was elected to parliament under a socialist ticket. So they had enough power to get him that far, get people like him that far. There were a lot of thinkers doing a lot of deep work around here. And I don't think you'd get that if they weren't having some impact and getting some foothold. What that would have looked like in the end if they had ended up taking over Italy. I'm not sure what they have aligned themselves with Russia. Sure. There was, a lot of thinkers within that group, uh, that we just sort of, we segment them and say, ah, that was, you know, the red area. That was a socialist area because they lost. So we don't really pay much attention to the differences between them, but they mm-hmm. were huge. They were having big fights amongst mm-hmm. themselves as to what kind of model they actually wanted to take. Mm-hmm. So where that would have went, gone I, where that would have gone. I'm not sure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but and- they were having an impact.
0: And Gramsci, he did have he did break with a lot of more traditional socialists in his thinking later. But we'll get there. We'll get mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Um, what was his government career like?
1: Um, I don't think it was particularly effective because okay. he got voted in right before Mussolini took hold. And mm-hmm. I think his more, if I remember correctly, and I'm I'm more of a expert on his theory than I am his biography. So I'm, I'm piecing this together in my memory. It was his writings in journals and like op-eds that had the more impact than his actual legislative career he wasn't really you know there's no right uh, piece of legislation that he's known for that Mm -hmm. had some sort of impact but he was still writing prolifically and that was that seemed to be what was worrying people that was what was scaring Mussolini and others and that seems to be what he was good at and where he was
0: so after Mussolini took power um, where do, where do his writings go? Where do his, like, op-eds and whatnot go? What's his...
1: They were all over the place. Um, he actually started his own paper when he was in Turin, and I'm terrible at Italian, but essentially it was the New Order is what he called mm-hmm. it. Ordina Nova. No- Ordina Nova. Nova? Yeah. Okay. Was his know, previous know, paper called it. Joy Division? No. The Voice of the People was another one where he was, uh, writing... Sorry. For the okay, I'm sorry. New I'm Order
0: was formed out show. of members of Joy Division. It's a music I'm
1: joke. Than you. I don't. Okay. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm, what it is is that I'm just not very cool.
0: No, you're you're fine. Okay. So, when does he start uh, formulating his ideas about hegemony?
1: Looking at his life, you can kind of see him formulating it in these arguments that he's having with his other socialist friends, mm-hmm. some of his thought rivals on the left. But they don't actually percolate into something useful, what we use. What mm-hmm. Actual social scientists use use his prison notebooks so mm-hmm. it was after he's arrested um he starts giving us uh, the body of work that we still carry with us today it was after everything went downhill for him
0: okay so fast forward he's arrested in 1926 yeah. Mussolini goes full dictator starts rounding up a whole bunch of his political opposition throws like a bunch of non-fascists in jail including Gramsci and then he's put in prison And that's where he does a lot of his writing.
1: That's where he does a lot of his writing. And there's actually a cool quote at the trial that put him in prison. Mm -hmm. uh, His prosecutor actually said, for 20 years, we must stop this brain from functioning. Hmm. They were desperately trying to shut him down because he was a powerful voice in opposition to this. And they just openly said, you can't be writing. You're too effective. You're in jail for 20 years. And that's how he gets there. But they don't. They don't stop his brain from functioning He's locked in the cell and he just starts writing. Um, and those are what we call the prison notebooks. And they're weird to read. Okay. Uh, those, and this is why I think his biography is actually kind of sparse if you try and chase it down, is because those who, like Ramsci have a hard enough time trying to piece together his thought because it's cryptic. He can't speak directly about what's going on because he is in prison. And if they find these things and he, they find that he's they can prove he's writing against Mussolini and the fascist regime, they'll just kill him. So reading these prison notebooks, is very weird. You actually have uh, to pick apart what he's referring to because he'll have strange words in reference to the regime, in reference to power, in reference to the police, and there's reams of them. It's very weird to read, mm-hmm. but in it is his massive contribution to ultimately what is social science, political thought, cultural hegemony. It okay, comes out of there and. We can walk you through that. Let's walk through that. Walk you through that. that. Yes,
0: let's go there.
1: Uh, And then, and then, once I explain this idea, I can tell you more about little we know about the end of Grandpa's life, which is actually it's quite sad. Okay. Um. So, cultural hegemony. Have you introduced what Marx did your listeners at all? Not really. Okay.
0: So, okay, you have the sort of standard model of Marxism, which. Um, I'm going to like grossly mischaracterize and oversimplify this is that um, you have people who ideally act as uh, rational decision makers from an economics textbook who should work in their own best interest. And if you're not doing that, then you have the hood pulled over your eyes. You have false consciousness, et cetera. Um, you, You should be a rational sort of like you should be this like rational utility maximizing thing. I think a lot of traditional, like, economic and also Marxist thought, you know, characterizes people. But Gramsci says that that's not the case.
1: Uh, Yeah, and I think we get... Right now, the discussion around economics is around this sort of rational versus irrational, because this Mm -hmm. rational thought model got really big again in Mm -hmm. the last 34 years. Um, The part of Marx that Gramsci kind of uh, held truck with, even though I think most people would classify him as a Marxist thinker, Mm -hmm. uh, is the idea of the base versus the superstructure. So, for Marx, the base was what he referred to as essentially the economy. Who makes stuff? Where does that stuff come from? Who does it get sold to? Who owns the means of making that stuff? Who Mm -hmm. makes it? That's what he called the base, the economy. Over that are all of our religious institutions, Mm -hmm. our ideologies, our beliefs, our sense of who we are, uh, what's important, values. And Marx referred to that as a superstructure. Mm hmm. The way Marx understood it is that the superstructure arose out of the base. So basically the economy decides what we deem as important. This was part of his idea that, uh, you know, all of our religious beliefs, all of our institutions are just coming out of the fact that we have this material reality shaped in such a way. It right. excuses, it makes, uh, it it gives sense to the superstructure. So that false consciousness... Can arise, and we don't quite pay attention to the fact that most of us get screwed day on day out mm-hmm. by, by working for wages. So for Marx, he was, he downplayed culture ultimately, mm-hmm. but Gramsci, he'd had this experience of being a Southerner in the Northern area when the revolution was trying to percolate. What he was doing in Turin was trying to convince the industrial workers to pair with the farmers, of the South, the peasant class in the South, and say, mm-hmm. if you guys could recognize your mutual interest together, you're a much more powerful block. You can actually turn this thing to our favor. <laughs> but most of the northern industrials are like, no, those are peasants. They're very uncool. We don't want anything to do with them. Their, their ways are weird. What they eat is weird. They talk funny. And so, Gramps, you realized that this didn't quite make sense based on what Marx was saying. He's saying culture is a big deal. Culture's mm-hmm. keeping us apart. And if we don't understand culture, if we don't build a new socialist culture where uh, people are, are able to come in on a cultural level, then we're not going to move forward to an egalitarian economic system. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah. Um, and so cultural hegemony was part of this, him realizing that this cultural thing was actually much more wrapped into how power functions. So cultural hegemony, for him, a lot of people talk about power in terms of domination about exacting force on people to make them do what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gramsci kind of turns out on his head and said, no, power functions as a system of consent. It's a process of consent. Mm. At any given time in any different power structure, the dominated are consenting to being dominated.
0: He sounds like an antecedent to Michel Foucault.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. uh, I don't think either of them would agree with that, but I've always seen the connection. No, (laughs) you kind of see because... And Foucault, I think, was was finding these things because he had the benefit of being able to read Gramsci, right? Mm-hmm. And so they went even deeper into culture. And often, they Foucault and the postmodernists said culture is everything, mm-hmm. left the economy and these material realities behind entirely. <laughs> yes, they did. <laughs> and I think that's where Gramsci yeah. would pull back again, and and he really is a marriage of the material reality mm-hmm. and cultural reality. Said so these things work together continually all the time. That is cultural hegemony. Cultural hegemony is this process. So he watched as the state and eventually the fascist regime and the capitalists built themselves a historic block, what he called a historic block. And that's when the dominant classes build a system of consent with certain majorities. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the northern industrial workers, they said, we'll let you keep your vague conceit that you're better than the southerners. We'll let you have certain wage concessions. We'll let you have certain, you know, labor relations, quality of life concessions if you stay with us. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that broke down their support just enough. Whereas if they had been able to build a socialist historic block between the industrial workers and the southern farmers, they might have had this this red socialist revolution. This is all making sense. Yeah, it's a a very nuanced idea and again, Mm -hmm. very hard to actually pick up out of Mm -hmm. his prison notebooks because they're in this sort of pseudo-crypto language.
0: Right. So one of the things that I have been sort of frustrated about with reading about Mussolini is that as the fascists take power, there are so many opportunities for them to be stopped by other differing institutions. For example, you had non-fascist conservatives who thought Mussolini was a whack job and fascists were insane. But hey, at least they're not socialist. Uh Uh, You had the Catholic Church. People who are listening to this in order will have just listened to an episode about the Catholic Church making a deal with the devil. Um, And the Catholic Church says, oh, these guys are very anti-clerical, but hey, um, we can work with them. Um, You had the monarchy, which could have, you know, undermined Mussolini at any time, but Victor Emmanuel just kept signing whatever was put in front of him, even though he had the legal authority to say no. You have all these institutions that fail to check power. Yeah.
1: And... Gramsci would have said, instead of describing it in the sense of fail to check power, though that was clearly partly what was going on, Mm -hmm. he'd said that's normal. That's how all systems of power work. It just became very obvious because the system of power in this case was so awful. But cultural hegemony is always going to appear as this singular consensual culture Mm -hmm. and politics where the system meets the minimal needs of the majority while being able to advance the actual interests of the dominant class mm-hmm. so because uh Mussolini and the state was able to still give the church a minimal amount of control or at least influence in Italian culture then they had every reason to keep going on
2: mm-hmm. there
1: are no desperate need to uh turn over the state now that would be dangerous for them so go on get along and so they consent mm-hmm. they actively consent to the system to the power.
0: Uh, hegemony also works to make certain things seem like common sense or seem like Mm. a given though, right? Yes. Like certain things are just like, this is reality now. And that goes, go, those things go entirely unexamined. Like what are some examples of that?
1: Do you want it in Italy or do you want it in contemporary American culture? Let's let's do both. Okay. Can we do both? Yeah, we can yeah. try and do no. both. Okay. Um, and I know contemporary American culture better than I do Italy at this point, unfortunately. Okay. For Gramsci, he was interested in how Catholicism was consenting to this new fascist regime. Mm-hmm. And the sort of quiet, hidden nature of cultural hegemony almost breaks down during this point in Italy because everything was in rapid turnover. Power was changing hands very fast. Everything was kind of fractured. So it became visible. Usually Mm -hmm. it's invisible. Some of the big cultural hegemony of America right now is the American dream,
2: Mm -hmm. right?
1: Uh, This idea that you work hard enough, you do the right, you make the right choices. If you're a responsible adult, you get a good job. You get the right education. You will find a certain material security that extends slightly beyond your parents and you'll Mm -hmm. be able to to provide a certain amount of material security for your children as well. Right. All while being reasonably politically free, uh, and unfettered by the state, you know, having some sort of repressive control over how you self express. Mm -hmm. And most of us take that for granted, or at least we did until when 2008, right? Right. We had this major uh, material break and suddenly people start questioning the, the American dream. Because the uh, cultural hegemony is always being strained, it's always a tentative consensus. And so if something like that comes up, suddenly you see it something that you never thought of before as as anything other than, yeah, that's the way things work. Mm-hmm. Something becomes visible, suddenly you see the sort of hypocrisy. you can see who's starting to consent to someone a system of power that's not quite working in their interests. Mm-hmm. The big historic block in America is sort of middle America, white reasonably middle class. Some... Or people who think they're middle class. Right. And then yeah. that's the, the, and this is the strain that's starting to happen is mm-hmm. that 20 years ago they were solidly middle class. Mm-hmm. Now they're starting to drop in material uh, uh, security. So that historic block is being strained. This is precisely the point. And this is what's interesting about Gramsci for a lot of social scientists is he's not just talking about a system of consent to power. He's also describing a way to thwart it on a social scale. He points to these moments of breaking when the historic block is no longer functioning, when the powers that be are no longer providing that minimal needs for their majority, their historic block, that block starts to crumble. Mm-hmm. And so if you take cultural seriously and take materials, reality seriously, that's when you can start to build a new consensus you can start to build a new system that makes sense that makes sense yeah uh so he's both pointing to how do we consent to these systems of power and where do they functionally break down when is your opening if Mm -hmm. you want to change it because as a social activist that's very much what he was interested in and he his whole life was one of coming very close to the revolution that he wanted and just watching it ripped away from him and so he had a front seat to see how these things actually break down Mm -hmm. when they break down Um, and still all the time saying there were still points all the way along, but the right historic block was never built.
0: What happened at the end of his life? Uh, How did that play out?
1: Right. One of the sadder things is that as he was getting into the legislature, he was starting his legislator career. Some of his, you know, his, his larger journalism work, he also got married Mm -hmm. and he started having kids. He had two kids, but he never met his younger son because he was tossed into prison before he was born. He never saw his son. And he died in 1937, age 46. And they were actually at a point where they're trying to get him out of prison because he mm-hmm. was so sick. He had pulmonary tuberculosis, amongst other things. So it was clear that he was rapidly declining, and was likely to die. But he died before they were able to get him out to you know, see his family or, or be you know, somewhat free because mm-hmm. he was sick enough that they weren't worried about him anymore. And that was it. It's <clears throat> one of those deaths that haunts me because he was such a brilliant mind and most of the writing he was doing was in such duress that to think that if he'd gotten out and had another 20 years to write while free what he could have given us, mm-hmm. oh it makes me ill. So yeah, it's a sad story. He was essentially defeated by Mussolini with the exception of the prison notebooks.
0: So what is what is the legacy of Gramsci in the social sciences today? How is he perceived and taught and appreciated?
1: Yeah, he's coming back in a big way. They actually dropped him for quite a bit. Partly as the po- as part of that postmodern movement, when people ran so hard towards culture, they said Psst.
0: postmodernism was a weird thing people did in the seventies and eighties, and we're done with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really, really they were in yeah, the nineties, end of two thousands.
1: They were very informative. We we mm-hmm. got a lot out of them, mm-hmm. um, and they did this. This was this. Oh, words are everything. Uh, mm-hmm. The the way we speak is is how we make our reality. It was this very heady thing, and and they did end up pointing to a bunch of new sort of social discoveries through the postmodern movement. I don't want to, um, what's the word? Denigrate? Yeah, I don't want to denigrate. They okay. did good work. But the crisis happened, right? The financial crisis happened, and suddenly we got slammed down to earth a little bit. And we had to suddenly wake up as a field mm-hmm. and say, oh, wait a second, people can't feed themselves, anymore." we all of a sudden... People are losing their homes. What does this actually do to our communities? What is this doing to individuals? Uh, people are angry at each other all of a sudden again. And it's not just because of, uh, you know, bizarre religious prejudice. It's not just a matter of who's gay, who's straight anymore. Because um, that was a big, you know, the, the gender politics, racial politics, these were all big concerns of, of postmodernists. And they, it was a lot of language. Mm-hmm. But then the material reality comes back in and it's, Suddenly we're paying attention again to, oh, we do live in this economic system. Oh, we are funneling most of our money up to a very small elite class, and that's leaving more and more people behind. And oh, even though we're social scientists, we actually understand very little about this, and we have no power to try and reverse that. So suddenly Gramsci's coming back in a real way because he's able to marry that cultural hegemony marries this material reality and the cultural reality
2: you know
0: i gotta admit i find it very frustrating given that i'm a person who kind of wants to believe that human beings are just robots that will like make decisions to maximize their own benefit and therefore they're entirely predictable like video game physics objects or billiard balls and then gramsci says actually people aren't that I hate having to grapple with reality that a culture matters. That is so inconvenient. The culture
1: super matters. And it, yeah. uh, it's not just a matter of symbols. What I really find useful about his theory is his idea of practice. Mm-hmm. So uh, you are, some of the work I do is about, um, I, I work on information in the news. Mm-hmm. And so I work with this concept. I'm trying to build this concept that's called the information environment. It's, so we'll start back with that. So information environment, right? We all have one mm-hmm. uh, part of it. We're relying on the news. They build part of that information environment for us. But Gramsci also points me towards this idea that we also build one for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So you have habits and practices every day, places that you go for information, places you don't go for information. And then those then curate on addition to that. And so there's a lived experience that you then build your reality around that. And Gramsci was trying, and a lot of people have ignored this part of his his research, or not not research, he, they ignored part of this thought here, was that you have to live the resistance.
2: Hmm.
1: Think about it this way, it's, uh, we live currently in a capitalist system. You go to school, a lot of us go to college. Uh, colleges are what he'd call a hegemonic apparatus. So this institution that is built towards getting you a job, essentially, that job will then get you wages. These, most of these institutions that you get a job at, also hegemonic apparatuses, they all keep us pointed towards the system. Mm-hmm. And so at each point that you move through these institutions, move through these practices, and you have to, even if you, you, kind of, you can be aware of the sort of uh, critiques of all of these, you're still consenting at every point. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it so hard to resist these systems of power is because in order to live, you have to participate in it. Um, and you won't actually have a true counter-ideology until your practices start shifting. Mm. If you go back, all the way back, so we moved at one point from a feudal system to a capitalist open market system, uh, you know where the bourgeoisie took over, and we, we ended up with a bunch of parliaments all of a sudden. You know, the, the revolutions from uh, feudalism. What Gramsci said and can be said about that shift is that it started a couple hundred years before we actually had the revolution, right? Mm -hmm. So we had markets that started to build. Those markets built up a class of wealthy people that started to rival uh, the feudal lords. And it just had this whole other way of life around it that didn't revolve around the feudal lords. And so it wasn't until that entire different way of being and acting towards each other and building a community in power was that you could actually overthrow the new power.
0: Because the bourgeois reality existed apart from feudalism. Mm-hmm.
1: And you actually have to have that kind of system that has to be built up and lived before you can really overthrow.
0: You know, thinking about this in the context of Mussolini's Italy, it was a country where basically everything was co-opted by the state. Um, obviously the government, but also things like schools where you had like small children, You know, saying prayers in the morning about how great Il Duce was, Uh, the church, uh, unions, which were also incorporated into the fascist apparatus, Mm -hmm. uh, the press. It was all sort of pointing in the same direction. So it seems to be very, very explicitly hegemonic. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're saying that, like, other systems are not nearly so, like, I want to say gross or brutal or obvious But they can still all sort of like subtly herd you in that same Mm -hmm. direction, pointing to the same sort of way of being. Yep. Well, that's terrifying.
1: Well, it's just reality. Okay, You know, we live currently in a capitalist system. That means we participate in it. I don't know how to make my own food. If I need to eat, I need to go to the store. I have to participate in a capitalist process. And in a lot of ways, they're not bad. That facilitates me being able to do a lot of other things. The fact that I don't have to grow and cook all of my own food, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the complexity of these systems of consent. It also points to, again, where the fractures can start, and just how long it can take. I think if we, you, a lot of these leftist thinkers are trying to take down capitalism in the sense that it's a unfairly dominating system to the majority of people, the mm-hmm. uh, more majority of people end up exploited. And if that's the case, I think the analogy is, if we were to look at the overthrow of the feudal system, probably in the 1600s, we've got another 200 years of this before... <laughs>
0: 1600 is cool. We're just starting to yeah. talk about
1: it. We're just starting to build new systems. And I think it's coming out of the internet. Uh, there's hierarchical sh- selling, sharing systems just starting to like be thought about. The technology is just starting to be there to make this possible. Make, make it so we can start to think about it. At the same time, the stress is getting there. There's so much money at the top now that people really are starting to feel it, even in the first world countries. So we're starting to think about it. I'm thinking we're, we're at that place where, you know, 1600s, there's all these, uh, like, the levelers and the pilgrims, and there's this explosion of a different egalitarian, pseudo-weird movements around that time. You know anything about that, or have spoken about that? I just gave you something.
0: Go all right. Look it up, <clears throat> listeners.
1: I apologize. Throw this out. But
0: I mean, I'm passingly familiar with the levelers. Yeah, we can talk about that off mic in a moment. It's, it's
1: just cool. <laughs> okay, but but there was like this explosion of social movements in the 1600s, actually. Uh-huh. And it was the it was the early strain of the feudal system no longer working for people, and there being slight alternatives. But it was another 200 years before they actually did it, right? Uh, and I have a feeling that we're that's unfortunately probably where we are in terms of building a new system that might work for more people.
0: Okay. Well, I look forward to my hypothetical great grandchildren um, thinking that I was a weird, uncouth barbarian for participating in our current economic reality. <laughs> is there anything that we haven't touched upon about. Um, I do want to bring this back to Gramsci and his experience because this is a part of yes. a series about Italy. Um, and this is going to be a very, like, discursive episode. Yes, but that's, I know. And that's you totally can, fine. You
1: can cut out my weirdness about the 1600s. I'm
0: sorry. Just... No, no, no. The weirdness about the 1600s is totally cool. Actually, one thing I did want to ask you about. Why was socialism in Italy so demonized? Other than the threat of a Russian-style revolution, what made socialism such a boogeyman to the liberals, to Catholics, and everybody else who said, oh, at least the fascists aren't
1: socialists? I think I know what Gramsci would say.
0: Okay, what would Gramsci and say? would
1: say that they were being provided with their minimal needs being met. That mm. was a guarantee. They had a certain amount of security. And it's very scary jumping to a new system, especially one that said... Mm, you're not You're not the model we want to follow. Your life's going to have to change.
0: I mean, I find that uh, interesting, though, because fascism was also a new system.
1: Yeah, but that state was making deals with people quite rapidly, if I remember okay. correctly. Um, like you said, it, it wrapped into itself these same institutions. So these institutions had a certain amount of security. They were going to exist. Mm-hmm. Socialism makes no promises about that. It certainly wasn't at that point. When we think of socialism, increasingly we're starting to think about the Scandinavian model, mm-hmm. where we've got a very clear picture of what that looks like, where all these institutions still exist. Right. Uh, there's just a very clear redistributive system to it. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any such luxury of looking to Sweden and said, oh, they look fine. Okay. So instead, you had a bunch of workers, not particularly educated, not particularly cool, uh, saying, we're going to be in charge now. We're the real people. And for anyone who's in any sort of slightly more elite place, that's scary. I think Mm -hmm. if dock workers today said actually we're the new future and you're all going to be following our needs and placing them center, a lot of people would balk at that as well.
0: That makes sense, because there's no necessary guarantee that, like, say, the church will still exist.
1: Mm-hmm. And the church was a big part of it, because socialism, a lot of left thinkers were absolutely <laughs> using Marx, saying religion is just something that excuses exploitation. It just excuses the worst parts of capitalism. So a lot of them were saying it has to go. And even people who weren't part of the church, per se, were very attached to their Catholic beliefs. I think Gramsci mm-hmm. was trying to point to that, saying we've got to deal with this. We can't mm-hmm. just shove it off and declare it. Uh, illegitimate this is important right and he was actually quite good at talking about how words propaganda could help along revolutions like this and that you take ideas that people already care about and say look you have this value just apply it here we Mm -hmm. have values of charity and catholicism we have values of of a certain amount of equality even there's all sorts of Christian imagery around helping the poor, helping uh, the non-flashy of us. Mm-hmm. If you were to take that, apply it to socialism, and instead of just rejecting it, you'll get farther. Mm. But a lot of socialism, socialists at this point were saying, no, it's all, it's all corrupt. It's all bereft. Chuck it out. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but you can't really chuck out culture.
1: Exactly, and that's what that's part of. what Gramsci she was trying to get them to say, "Wrap this in, wrap this stuff that's important to people. Mm-hmm. The values are there. It's a clearly a shared value. Use their imagery, use their symbolism. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if the American left wants to reach people who are in Middle America, use the flag.
0: Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of... hypothetically.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hypothetically, it, yeah. it, it, it's those are important symbols mm-hmm. to them. Important symbols to everyone. If you if you claim it and say, yeah, we're here. Those are ours, too. You're going to get a lot farther
2: mm-hmm.
1: rather than saying, oh, that's been tainted now. It's it's too, it's full of hate or something.
0: Right. So you would say that, like, the radical left should not cede cultural symbols to conservatives. But the thing is, that kind of did happen in Italy because the right was very, very good at co-opting traditional culture. It was both radical and reactionary and highly traditionalist, mm-hmm. which makes fascism weird.
1: It makes it weird. It made it effective. And I think that's part of what Gramsci was sitting there watching. And he was saying, they just grabbed the symbols, which means they grabbed the country.
0: Dr. Z, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. This was fun.
0: All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you haven't already, uh, check out the British History Podcast. Uh, Z mostly stays behind the scenes on that show. But every so often, you can hear her on mic as well. Uh, Check out us on iTunes. Give us a rating and review. That would be excellent of you. Also, this is an ad-free podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, sign up for a monthly donation. That would be wonderful and amazing of you. I am on social media, and the podcast is on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, and the podcast is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.